Father, we come before you and we ask for a blessing upon your word. We know that it is your word that sustains us. It is your word that spoke into existence all of creation. And we know that it could affect our lives for righteousness and goodness and faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us by it, that we would learn and that we would grow as disciples. Help us not to stagnate or be apathetic, but help us to apply what we learn so that we can bring glory to you and a benefit to those who are around us. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> if God set up this whole plan of salvation and he told us what happened and how the earth fell into disarray along with the universe. When he wrote the book, do you think that he wants us to know if you're truly saved? The answer is yes. He wants you to have that assurance. He doesn't want you to waffle and, and say, well, I don't know if I am because, you know, it's a difficult walk and I just can't get this right. And then you learn about his mercy and you learn about his grace, his unmerited favor and how he most of the time does not judge you according to your sin. Now, he can at any time. If he wanted to at any time, he could take any one of us from this earth in judgment. But he is also merciful, and he chooses not to do so. He is tremendously patient with us. But he did give us in First John, as the Apostle John wrote this down, he gave us at least four tests in chapter 5. There is a test of love, there's a test of truth, there's a test of life, and a test of insight. These four things, if you examine yourself, you will be able to determine if you're saved. If you're doing these and believing these things for the most part, you're saved because it, it's not your works that save you. And I'll say that at the end again. It's not the things that you do that entitle you to go to heaven, but it's whom you believe. And if you trust his word that he says he's going to save you, you must believe that. And so there are these tests here. And the first one is a test of love. It begins in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. His child is Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So that last statement in verse 5 there tells us that we are overcomers if we simply believe. He doesn't say you are overcomers if you attend church, if you tithe, if you read the Bible, if you pray, if you do all those things. You have to believe God. But there is that test of love. Do you love God? You know, a lot of people claim to have unfailing love. Uh, but a faithful brother or a faithful friend, who can find? That's in the book of Proverbs. Have you ever had somebody that would say, I'm with you right to the end. And you call them up, they go, who are you again? What? What did you need? And they're pretty much gone. Well, God says, if you love him, that is a test. And if you pass it, it shows that you were actually saved. You have put your faith in him. When you put your faith in him, he gives you his spirit, which dwells inside, 
And he gives you the power to live for him. He gives you the power to sacrifice for him. So on a scale from 1 to 10, how much do you love God? As opposed to how much do you love yourself? See, that's, are you at a 5 or 7? And what I'm talking about is if you get to a 7, is that how much you love yourself or that how much you love God? If you go, I'm totally a 10, I love myself so much. If if you're at a 10 and you love yourself that much, it's how much are you willing to die to yourself? I I do this all the time. You know, there are certain foods that I just, I love. Ice cream, you know, uh, hamburgers, things like that. And I have to deny myself. Now, this has nothing to do with my love for God. This has to do all with my love for me. And when I give into that, I love myself. I feed myself. I take a shower. I brush my teeth. I do all of those things, but it's a demonstration how I love myself. But if God asks me to give up anything, and I'm not talking about hamburgers or ice cream, if he asks me to give up something, do I really want to do it? Or do I say, no, I'm not going to do that, especially if it's a benefit not only to me but those who are around me. If you are able to do that on a consistent basis, it shows that you love God and that you believe what he says, and it's a test that proves you are indeed saved. So that is the test of love that he gives to us. And you overcome the world by simply believing. Remember, it's not by doing something. So if you believe in Christ and trust him to save you, you have overcome. And this overcome, what is it you have overcome? Is it a hurdle of some kind? It is. You have overcome death and judgment. Now, you might say, well, wait, I'm going to die. And believe it or not, there are those people, I think it's in John chapter 11, that if you believe in me, the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus was talking to Mary, Martha, and and I think it's John 11. He was talking about Lazarus who had died already. And there are some people that teach that if you just have enough faith, you won't die physically. That is the worst doctrine. There used to be a guy in the church that was like that decades ago. And he kept on telling everybody that was the case. And I said, no, that's not the case. You're going to die. Uh, If God doesn't come back and get us, you are physically going to die. We're all under a curse. What that means is eternally. So when we die physically... God says, that's all right. You're not going to be destined for the judgment which is to come. You are going to get a new body and you're going to live forever. That's what you overcome. You overcome the pain, the sting, the penalty of sin, which is death and judgment. So if you believe in Christ, you have overcome that judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's where God extends his mercy. How do you get the mercy of God? You ask for it right? Uh, I told you a while ago I'd gotten a ticket like last year or something and I am determined in the future I'm going to turn to the police officer and say, will you give me mercy and not write me a ticket? Now, that's not his job to extend mercy. That's the judge's job, but I'm still going to ask him if he'll do that. If you ask Christ for mercy, he always gives it to you. A police officer may give it to you. He may not. But the judge, the ultimate judge, will freely extend it to you if you ask it or ask for it. That's why we need to always turn to God and say, God, can I have your mercy? 
I have blown it. I have made this mistake. And you are a merciful God. Please do according to your name. If you are the God of mercy, please extend to me your mercy. And if you ask in a humble fashion, he always guarantees that he will extend it to you. So this is an indication that you have been saved, that you've overcome the world, that you believe in Jesus Christ, and you demonstrate it by the love or keeping his commandments. And there is this test of truth in verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, if you read this, you would say, what in the world does this mean? Just on the face of it. And by the way, when you read the Scripture, you can't just read it and go through it and not stop and go, what does that mean? You have to ask questions of the text. You have to be a critical thinker. This is something that in today's schools aren't even taught. And I remember when I was in school, they didn't really teach us to think critically, to take either a text or a problem and break it apart and examine it in all of its parts and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Fortunately, in Scripture, we have other Scripture which can enlighten what there is written down for us so it will expand our understanding. If I came up to you and I simply said, and you were unsaved, and I said, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the spirit, water, and the blood. What would you say if you're an unbeliever? What in the world are you talking about is what you would say. And this is Christianese. This is hallelujah speak. This is Maranatha. You know, and even those words. If you walk around in the world and you say, Maranatha, they go, what are you talking about? Maranatha? Well, Hosanna, what, what are you, man, what language are you speaking? You would not even be able to get across what you're trying to say because you're speaking Christianese. And so this idea of the spirit and the water and the blood, there are three that testify. Now in the Old Testament, in order to carry out a capital punishment, what did you need as far as witnesses were concerned? You needed two or three witnesses. Right? And some of the lawsuits that are coming up today, like with these automatic tickets, you know, they got rid of the tickets on the intersections and stuff. People were beating them because there weren't witnesses of what was going on. You had the camera, you have to make the camera a person, and there were problems with that, and some judges would throw it out. They'd say there's no witness to the actual crime. And so if you had a capital punishment case that was coming up, you had to have at least two or three, and they had to be reliable witnesses. They couldn't be somebody who's shady. Now, how many uh, witnesses came forward, or did, was there several witnesses that came forward to convict Jesus at his trial? They were, but they were false witnesses, right? And we know that from the record, the account that we have today. But if you want a reliable witness, what is it that speaks as a witness? Now, you have forensic evidence in a capital case, and you have a person that's a witness. Now, you could say the camera is the forensic witness, but there is no person. And so you always want a person to bear witness. Now, in this particular case, there's the spirit, there's the water, and the blood. The first witness is the Holy Spirit, is what's being talked about here. In your text, if you'll notice, it's a capital S. It's the third person of the Trinity. It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's the one who speaks, the one who said, separate for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to do. 
He is personable. He can be grieved. Uh, you can sin against the Holy Spirit. All of these things happen, and he is a person. He is the first one that has borne witness to Jesus Christ and who he is. Now, <clears throat> when Jesus was baptized, if you will recall, actually turn over to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. I want you to see this. The Holy Spirit manifested in such a way to let John the Baptist know that Jesus was the Messiah. And it says he appeared as or like a dove. He wasn't a dove, but it says he appeared as one. It's a, it's a similitude that's used here. John chapter 1, verse 32. And John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And so the Spirit is the one who comes down and actually was a testimony to who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah. John the Baptist was told this. We don't know if the others saw the Holy Spirit coming down. God oftentimes will do that where there will be a vision or something takes place, but not everybody can see it. But John the Baptist saw the Holy Spirit come down and rest upon Jesus. So the Spirit is the first one saying that Jesus is the Christ. Then there is the water and the blood. And over the centuries there has been debate. What does the water and the blood mean? Some people believe that it is the water from birth. Now, when a baby is born, is there water? There is water. The common refrain is, my water broke. And then it's time to go to the hospital. It's time to birth the baby. Uh, for instance, when we are born, we are born into this life through water. And we exit this life, but our uh, physical body, it deteriorates. But we are born into this life through water, and you have to be born into the kingdom. And Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about this. And he told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he said, Don't you know that you have to be born again? And Nicodemus was a little confused. <laughs> wait a second, wait, wait. I can't go back into my mother's womb. I can't do this process over. And Jesus turned to him a little surprised, I think, and he said, are you really a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things that you have to be born again? The phrase could probably better be interpreted, you have to be born from above. You have to be born of God. You can't just be born physically. So you have to be born twice, and if you are born twice, you will only die once right? But if you're not born twice, if you're only born once, you will die twice. You will die physically, and then you will die in the judgment, which is the lake of fire, and that lasts forever. And so if you were born twice, you will live forever. So this idea of water birth, that is one belief that is out there. Uh, another belief is that Jesus was baptized, and when he was baptized, that water symbolized his connection with humanity. Even though he didn't need to be baptized uh, in order to cleanse himself, so to speak, the symbolic cleansing uh, to be righteous before God. He didn't have to do that. 
But some people say it is not just the physical birth, but it is the act of baptizing in water. And then there's the idea of the blood. Augustine said, St. Augustine, that the blood is actually communion, that you take communion and that is the act of the blood. But the text seems to indicate it was something that was in the past. It's not something that is ongoing all the time. So as far as it being communion, I would reject that. Some people say it's his crucifixion. Now, I believe it is the crucifixion. It's the shedding of blood. That is the witness that his blood was able to cover the sins of everybody. And the water, it doesn't matter to me. It can be either the baptism or it can be born physically. Because who was John writing to? He was writing to believers, but in what kind of genre was he writing this letter? To those who were Gnostics as well. And do you remember what I told you the Gnostics believed? That Jesus wasn't physical. And so if he's writing this in the context of the Gnostics... They think that Jesus was super spiritual, that he just manifested as a human being, that the physical world is not real. I told you it's like the matrix. And so I could see him writing this to say, look, there's a physical property of water. It's a physical birth. That's the testimony. Jesus came physically. He was also baptized in water. He also had the testimony of the Spirit. We also have the testimony of John the Baptist. We also have the testimony of the Father, right? The father, when Jesus was baptized, what did the father say? Your voice is so small. That's what he said. This is my beloved son and who I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And so that was, they didn't have speakers back then. You know, so this voice comes out of heaven. How do you think everybody reacted to that? They probably freaked. You know, they, whoa. Where did that come from? I don't know. Where did, well, man, what was that? I don't know. It sounded like thunder to me. You know, and they couldn't quite make it out, but it was the father actually speaking audibly. He spoke a second time. He spoke at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he talked about glorifying himself. Jesus asked the father to glorify him. And God said, I will. I will glorify you. <clears throat> and so that's what that's the two times that the father bore witness to who the son was. Now we also have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 another testimony. Testimony of the resurrection, right? But how many people did he appear to at one time? That's right. Got all the answers this morning, Elizabeth. That's good. 500 people at one time. How many witnesses do you need to establish a fact? Two or three. You got 500. And then 1 Corinthians was written. Any one of those 500 people, when 1 Corinthians 15 was written, could have said, that is not true. That didn't happen. Here's how it happened. Well, the 500 witnesses did not come up and refute the actual event. So you have 500 witnesses. You have John the Baptist. You have the people that live with Jesus. You have his 12 disciples. You have the spirit. You have the water. You have the blood. How many witnesses do you need to prove that Jesus was an actual individual that showed up he walked among us, and he resurrected. It's overwhelming, the number of people, the number of testimonies which are out there. And so John is just making the point with a few that we have the testimony as established by the Old Testament, the two or three witnesses. He sets it up, and he lets us all know that, in fact, who Jesus is is exactly who the Bible says he is. He is the Messiah. And by the way, if you say Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah, 
Christ is the title in Greek. Messiah is the title in Hebrew. And so whether you say Jesus the Christ or Jesus Messiah, either one is appropriate. Christ is not his last name. It is his title. It is his office that is being referred to there. Uh, Going on with this. Verse 9. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son has this testimony in his heart. So not only do we have all the testimonies from the people that I just mentioned to you, but you are also testimonies that Jesus Christ is real. Now, when you get saved, as I stated before, you have the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of you. And when you get ready to do something wrong, what happens to you? Conviction, convulsion, you know, all these things happen. And you want to resurrect the flesh when you want to sin. And the Holy Spirit says, crucify the flesh. And you have this battle which wages inside of you. It happens in the mind. And your flesh goes, go ahead, eat that ice cream and hamburger all at once. And the Spirit says, you're not going to regret that. You know, you ought not to do that. Those 6,000 calories will catch up to you real quick. It's that kind of thing. But if you want to sin in a more heinous fashion, God says, don't. But he doesn't strive with you. If you say, no, I'm going to, he will back away. And he will let you commit your sin. He doesn't come in and control you like a robot. He has given you free will. And so that is our task, is to make sure that we follow the Spirit, which is a testimony in our lives. If there is no change in your life when you accept Christ, maybe you want to re-examine. And what do I mean by a change? You know, there are people that live in the church ever since they're infants, and they grow up in the church, and they go, I really don't have a testimony. Are you kidding? How many people grow up in the church and are Miss Goody Two-Shoes or Mr. Goody Two-Shoes for all their lives? I I would rather be, (coughs) excuse me, an individual like that than have some flame and sinful testimony. You know, I I would rather be pure as the wind-driven snow when you look at what Christ desires. And so the person that laments, I've never had a sin testimony, and they figure out that they need to go get one. No, don't. That's... You don't have to go do that. You don't need that kind of testimony. The Spirit dwells within us, and He is the one that gives us a testimony. And by His grace, He takes some and says, you're going to serve me every day of your life. Like Pastor Chuck Smith. He was raised in a godly home. His mom prayed over him every day. Chuck Smith is the founder of Calvary Chapel. And so God used him in a great way. And now there are literally over a thousand churches around the globe and missionaries it's the thousands that are out there as a result and so there is this testimony that god can use both the sinner and the one who isn't quite as bad of a sinner but we have that spirit within us and we become a living testimony for christ verse 10 anyone who believes in the son of god has this testimony in his heart anyone who does not believe in god has made him out to be a liar Whew. Because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. This is pretty strong here. He's saying if you don't believe what God said, for instance, if you go out and witnessing, I have some tracks in my truck, the good person test. 
And if you give the good person test to somebody, are you a good person? And it's, have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lied? That type of thing. People will say, well, I'm a good person, really. Have you ever stolen anything? Well, yes, I have. Well, doesn't sound like you're a very good person to me. Well, you know, it's only something small. Well, God says he demands perfection. If you stole even a paperclip, you are under judgment. And by the way, if you never committed a sin, you still have the sinful nature and you're still under judgment. Okay, so don't think that I haven't done those things. Well, you are sinful. You are utterly harmful to yourself and to everybody else around you. And so, (coughs) excuse me, if you don't believe the testimony when somebody comes up to you and says, you are under judgment, if you say, I don't believe that, you are calling God a liar. Anybody want to stand up and call God a liar? (laughs) I don't. I don't want to do that, but that's what God's saying. And so when everybody appears before God... And Jesus is on the throne and he turns to the individual, who John Q. Public, who is there. And he said, I sent so-and-so to witness to you and you didn't believe him. You know what that means? And the person will say, no. And he'll say, you called me a liar. You called me a liar. And what's God going to do? God is going to judge the individual. Now that's a time to be a little fearful, right? But we have passed from that fear of dread and judgment into the mercy of God, if you believe. But the person who doesn't believe is still under that. Have you ever talked to somebody or had a, a conversation with somebody that has a family member that has died and they don't want to see the individual after the person has died for whatever reason? Usually, though, it's rooted in fear. They don't want to see somebody who has passed away. There is a fear and a dread of somebody dying. And they know that their time is coming as well. And so God has called this individual who does not believe a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony, verse 11. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. And he who has the son has life and he who does not have the son does not have life. And that's the end of the story. And it's very exclusive. It's very myopic. There's only one way to God. There, there isn't these spokes that all lead to heaven. Everything else out there is a lie. Now, you might say, well, that's just your opinion, Pastor. No, it's the testimony of God. Now, you have to believe the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, you can believe anything. You have to actually dig into the Bible and say, is this thing true? Is it verifiable? Can I establish that I can live by my life by it and get eternal life? Well, the answer is yes, but you have to endeavor to go into it and look at it. When people ask me, or that we're having a conversation, when they, when they talk about, well, I don't believe there is just, you know, the Christian God. I always turn to them and say, so what God do you believe in? The God of Islam? Is that the God you believe in? Allah? The one who says that women are really nothing and you might go to heaven, you might not. It just depends on the, uh, the capricious acts of a, a, a vicarious God, a God that is up there that just decides on a whim what he wants to do and puts some people in and some people not in. He helps who he wants to and some people he doesn't help. He is the God of death. He tells all of his people to go out and kill, at least according to the Orthodox people that are in the Muslim religion. Is that the God you believe in? Do you believe in the God of Buddhism? That you just go to the all-nothingness that is up there, the one big plane, the consciousness that is that. Is that the God you believe in? 
I will ask him these questions directly. I'll say, do you believe in the, the gods of Egypt? Do you believe in the Greek gods which are out there, Zeus and Poseidon and all of those gods? Which god do you believe in? And sometimes you narrow it down for them and they say, well, I don't believe in any of those gods. Well, do you believe in the God who calls himself the I Am, the Christian God, the one who manifested himself as Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity? And sometimes they will acquiesce. They will say, well, I guess that's the only known God. And then sometimes their neck just, it's like a plank. It's stapled to the back of it. I will not believe. That doesn't do any good at all. You're calling God a liar if that is the case. So if you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. So that is the testimony of truth. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. See, here's the reason he wrote this. He wants you to know that you're saved. He doesn't want you to doubt what is going on. In John chapter 20, verse 31, the Gospel of John, he repeats it there. He says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, the things that I'm giving you here, this is boot camp stuff. This is basic. If you have been a believer for any amount of time, you're going, I know all this. I have all this down. You know, you're supposed to read the Bible over and over and go through it over and over. So you have the truth down so well that there's no question about it. How many of you can recite the alphabet? (laughs) Only a few of you, huh? How many of you can recite the Pledge of Allegiance? There you go. How many of you can recite the Gettysburg Address? Four score and seven years ago, our father set forth in this continent a new nation, a nation conceived and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created. You know, you had to do that in elementary school. If I was to go over and over and over that, I would have it memorized. Well, the Bible says go through it over and over and over. Don't just spend a little time. So when I'm teaching or I'm preaching... You can say, amen. Amen? amen. amen. That, that's what you want to be able to say. And that will help you in your walk. You go, yeah, this is a truth that I've heard for years. I understand this. But there are people in here that are just getting it for the first time. They're going, really? I can know that I am saved by the test of love. I can know that I am saved by the test of truth, believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, you can. And those who already believe, it just establishes you even more because God's word is truth. Let's go on. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Now, I like that promise. When your parents, sometimes your parents couldn't give you what you wanted. I remember that. I remember my parents are going through a hard time and I asked them for some money for some stuff and no, we don't have any money. You can't do that. I think, oh, you know, I'd walk away. But they, I know that they wanted to. They wanted to help me. Well, the Heavenly Father says, ask me whatever you want and if it's according to my will, you get it, right? I bet you haven't been asking them much lately unless you're asking to heap it upon your own flesh, Right? God, I want a million dollars. What if he says, okay, 
<laughs> Great. That's wonderful. But most of the time he says no. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And so many people have been ruined by it. Well, what if you want a life where you live to be 150? God says, no, I don't think so. A man's years are going to be 70. It says that in Scripture, right? Now, some people live longer than 70. Before that, it was 120. Before that, how long did Methuselah live? Almost 1,000 years. Eric, do you know how many years he lived? 969. Yeah, I go, he's the calculator over there. He has everything in his mind. 969 years is how long Methuselah lived. And so if you ask things according to his will, like right now we're under judgment, and God reduced the number of years that he's going to have us be on this earth. So if you ask him for something outside of his will, you're not going to get it. But ask him for something inside of his will. For instance... If you said, God, I want to be an on-fire Christian for you. I want to be blazing so much people get torched when I walk next to them. Do you think that's his will? No. Of course it's his will. He wants you to be a flame. He wants you to be a light. He wants you not to put it under a bushel. He wants you to be that light that shines everywhere. If you said, God, I want to be a light for you, just use me. Will he grant you that wish? He will. How do you think he might use you? Now, see, that's where people go, I don't know. He might send me somewhere or make me do something or get in front of people and make me talk. or You know, he can make me do all kinds. I'm not going to ask for something like that. Just ask God for what you know to be his will, and he promises to give it to you. That is an incredible promise. Like people I, I know... They'll say, I can't memorize God's word. If you read it a thousand times, do you think you would have it down? It might require some work on your part, but he's going to grant you your request. It's just your responsibility in the matter. Now, you work together with God as a partner. You are his hands here. He has chosen to use you. So whatever you ask for, if it's according to his will, he gives it to you. What an incredible promise. And if it's asking something that's according to his kingdom and his plan, it's going to happen. So if you simply say, and I, I would encourage you to say just this. Plead with him and say, God, use me. And if you ask that, he will answer that prayer. He will use you. And you will have the ride of your life. You know, when you go to the San Diego County Fair, it used to be the Del Mar Fair, they used to have this little roller coaster. I think they still have it. It's just this little rinky-dink thing. It kind of goes up and spins around a little bit. It's not the Swiss bobs or anything like that. It just kind of rolls around. And then you go to Magic Mountain. If you say, I want a real roller coaster, okay, we're going to Magic Mountain. And it's the greatest ride if you just ask for it. It's the thrill of your life if you submit to God and say, God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. Just use me. Take me anywhere. Teach me anything. Put me through anything you want. He goes, okay, I've got one. Ding! And come forward. And you can be used by God. So that's a fantastic promise, and you should not go from this place without understanding that. Now, there are several promises of God, by the way. The Holy Spirit is a promise. The resurrection of the dead. Salvation to all who ask. <coughs> we dwell... We will dwell with one another for all of eternity. We will enter the rest of the Lord. He promised never to leave us. 
So those are promises of God. He promised to give us an abundant life, a crown of life, a heavenly home, a new name, answers to prayer, assurance, cleansing, clothing, comfort, companionship, deliverance, divine sonship, fellowship with Jesus, faithfulness, gifts of God, glory after death, God's protecting care, growth, guidance, hope, inheritance, joy, knowledge, liberty, peace, power for service, restoration, rich reward, strength, understanding, and wisdom. He promised to give all of those things to you. If you ask for wisdom, what does the book of James say about wisdom if you ask for it? He'll give it to you, and he'll give it to you without finding fault. He won't say, you didn't go to church last Sunday, so you don't get it. He doesn't say stuff like that. He goes, no, I'm going to give you wisdom. And I'm going to give you enough for what you need. And so always ask for wisdom. Ask to be used and ask for wisdom and he gives it to you. But the promises we usually want to call upon for our own selves, the things that we want, we want youth, we want looks, we want a skinny body, we want a husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, riches, power, car, houses, good grades, influence, position, earthly family, Children, wholesome environment, quickness of mind, lack of pain and suffering, motivation, material possessions, quads, boats, skis, airplanes. We want everything like that, right? And God says, now ask for what I want to give you. If you ask for what he wants to give you, you have the promise that he will provide it for you. Now, we have the test of love we saw, the test of truth, and there's the test of life. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will forgive or will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. Now this is a tremendously confusing passage. What is being talked about here? He's talking about if somebody sins, you can pray for them in that sin and hopefully they will repent and they will turn to God then there is a sin that leads to death. And he's not saying that you should pray about that. I'm just going to tell you right up front, I think that that is the unforgivable sin. If you think you've committed the unforgivable sin, if you're here, you haven't. The unforgivable sin is where you reject everything about God, you resist his Holy Spirit, you say that anything that God does is actually the devil, or you attribute it to some other earthly purpose, like, for instance, you watch Discovery Channel and we know all the miracles that took place were because of natural forces on the earth like wind and things like that, right, according to the Discovery Channel. Scripture says, no, it was a miracle. So the person that constantly rejects God and says, I'm not going to follow God, well, it's like, okay, just move on to the next person. Not everybody will receive what it is you have for them, the, the message of salvation. So there's this sin unto death, which is an unforgivable sin. There's a sin unto death, a capital offense. There's a sin that's not unto death, a non-capital crime. <coughs> and an example of sin that leads to physical death, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira in Corinthians, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 5. They were judged right then. And so this idea, if, if somebody just continually rejects Christ, move on to the next person. You don't need to spend your time with that individual. Only give the gospel to those who are receptive to it. And, and you'll know as soon as you give it to everybody that you come across. You'll know if they're receptive or not. Now going on, all wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. And so in keeping with the context here, 
this idea of sin that no one continues in sin. No one continues in the unbelief. No one continues in the rejection of God that actually believes in God. Now, there might be some doubt that comes along, and God helps us with our doubt. And so that is the test of life. The individual that accepts Christ, they do not reject this test of life. Jesus is life. God is life. He is light. He is mercy. All of those things. If you reject that, you're rejecting eternal salvation. Then there's the test of insight. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Did you catch that? Who's in control of this world? Satan is in control of this world. Have you noticed that? Is it obvious to you at this point, especially if you've been a believer for a while? Do you recognize the influence of evil over the world? And those who are perpetrating it, do they say it's good? They do. They say, oh, this is going to be a good thing. No. It's not, it's not a good thing what the powers that be want to install. And Satan has the power to lift up one and another. But ultimately, God says, I'm going to allow this one here and put up this one here. It says that God is directing the affairs. But I think he uses Satan as uh, uh, permissible, his permissible will. He just says, go ahead, do it. Just fine. I'm going to glorify myself in spite of what you try to do here. But the earth is under the influence of the evil one. Verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. In other words, before you were saved, you had no understanding or comprehension of who God was. God had to reveal himself to all of us. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And that is a deity scripture. Another deity scripture. Titus 2.13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Romans 9.5. For theirs are the patriarchs from whom is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all forever praised. Amen. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Bible clearly says in several places that Jesus Christ is God in human form. That is what John is establishing here. So he gave us these four tests. This idea of the test of life, the test of truth. I just gave them all to you. The question is, do you pass the test? Do you believe God? Do you have that life? Have you not shunned his advances in your life to get you this salvation? If you do, you have it. And how do you appropriate that? How do you give it to yourself? How do you bring it home? You've heard it so many times. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's how you get salvation. And we know what waits us if we do. And we know what waits us if we don't. I pray this morning that you choose life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the disciple, the apostle John, for writing these things down. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to remember them, whether they be elementary for us the first time or whether we are seasoned in our faith. Help us to be able to recount these at a moment's, moment's notice, being prepared in season and out of season. We thank you for your encouraging words. We thank you for giving us this knowledge. And we ask that you would bring all this knowledge to fruition, to the fruit of life that others may come to us and participate in receiving of it. We thank you for the chance, Lord, to be your witnesses here. In Jesus' name, amen.